This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where hundreds of researchers make new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber scientists. Learn more about their momentum at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This message comes from NPR sponsor Osea and their best-selling Undaria Algae Body Oil. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley in for Terry Gross. The critically acclaimed and cult favorite series Yellow Jackets returned to Showtime last week. Today, we feature our interview with Melanie Linsky, one of its stars. In Yellow Jackets, she plays Shauna, one of the survivors of a 1996 plane crash. She was a member of a girls' high school soccer team on its way to the national championships. The plane crashes, and the survivors have to spend over a year in the Canadian wilderness. Viewers slowly learn all the terrible things that the survivors had to do to stay alive. The show goes back and forth, showing the teenagers before and after the crash, as well as in 2021, when the few remaining survivors try to carry on with their lives while still living with the memories of the crash and its aftermath. Linsky's first movie role was in Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures in 1994, playing opposite a pre-Titanic Kate Winslet. Since then, Linsky has starred in many films and TV roles, including Up in the Air, The Informant, Ever After, Sweet Home Alabama, Don't Look Up, Togetherness, Mrs. America, and as the next-door neighbor on the CBS sitcom Two and a Half Men. Melanie Linsky spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado last year. Here's a scene from the first episode of Yellow Jackets. It's in the present day, and Melanie Linsky's character, Shauna, is married with a teenager and living in the same New Jersey town where she grew up. She's at home when a woman claiming to be a reporter approaches her, wanting to tell Shauna's story. The reporter is played by Rika Sharma. I know what you want to hear. But the truth is, the plane crashed, a bunch of my friends died, and the rest of us starved and scavenged and prayed for 19 months till they finally found us. And that's the end of the story. I think we both know there's a bit more to it than that. I can't imagine what you guys went through out there. Nobody can. And that is worth something. It's worth a lot, actually. I can guarantee you a seven-figure book advance right here, right now. We could write it together, but it's your name on the cover. Not interested. Sorry. What if I told you the others were? Then I would say that you're lying. So you are still in touch. I haven't spoken to any of them in years. I would not know how to get hold of them, even if I wanted to. I moved on, and I genuinely hope that they were able to do the same. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm... Shauna, this is the kind of money that could change your life. You were an elite athlete. Straight A's, early admission of Brown. Is this really how you thought your life was going to turn out? Sorry. I didn't mean to, uh... I don't give a... What you meant, you smug little bitch. You don't know a thing about my life. Melanie Linsky, welcome to Fresh Air. 
Thank you so much for having me. This is amazing. The show is about, among other things, friendships between teenage girls, particularly friendships that are pretty toxic. Uh, was that something that appealed to you or a theme you like to explore? Because you have a lot of like flawed, like, toxic relationships in your work. <laughs> yeah, I guess I do. That's so funny. I mean, it's always more fun to play because there's just so much there when there's drama and there's hurt feelings and upset. I myself, I'm still friends with pretty much everyone I was friends with as a teenager, so I don't really relate. Personally, my female friends are the most important people in my world, but I do think it's, I, I love the storytelling and I love how complex it is in the show. Also, when I was reading the pilot, I just thought, oh, these all feel like fully developed people. None of them are sort of stereotypes it's not like the brainy one, the slutty one. It's They're all interesting people who contain multitudes. And that was kind of rare for me to see in the writing of a group of teenage girls. Yeah, there's an interesting story about what inspired the show creators to make this series about a group of teenage girls surviving a plane crash. And it has to do with a rumored remake of Lord of the Flies. Is that true? I think so. I've heard them tell the story at a panel where they were reading the comments like on Deadline or something where people were like, oh, you can never do an all-female Lord of the Flies because what are they going to do, compromise to death? You know, <laughs> like all these things about women, these about women not being vicious, women not being violent, uh, not being willing to do what it takes to survive. And Ashley, who's one of the show creators, was like, well, these people have never met a teenage girl. And then they got inspired to, to tell this particular story. Shauna, the character you play, is very vividly, like, every day dealing with decisions that she made as a teenager. You know, the feelings she had, the relationships she forged. Do you relate to that? You know, I will say that sometimes I still feel like very connected to the awkward teenager I was. Like I can still access her. Like do you relate to kind of what Shauna's going through that way? Yes, very much. I feel the same. I think if you've ever been shy, if you've ever <laughs> been awkward, it's almost impossible to stop feeling that way. I still have a thing when I'm at work, you know, and I have to eat lunch with a group of people, I still get heart-pounding anxiety about what table do I sit at? Who's going <laughs> to reject me? Because as a kid, I didn't, you know, we moved around a lot when I was really little and I didn't have friends and I just never had a group of people I could sit with at lunch. <laughs> so I think maybe that's why when, once I did make friends, I was like, you're with me for life. <laughs> We're never <laughs> splitting up. I was obsessively loyal. But yeah, Shauna is really, she has a lot of survivor's guilt I think, about making it out of that situation, not feeling like an especially good person, but having survived and feeling very guilty about that. So that's an interesting thing to play. You were born and raised in New Zealand. Can you tell us about where you grew up and what it was like? I grew up in a town called New Plymouth in a province called Taranaki. It's on the west coast of the North Island, and it's kind of provincial, I guess I would say. 
It's a very beautiful place. There's a volcano and there's black sand beaches. It's now quite a like vibrant little community. When I was growing up, it wasn't quite as great as it is now. When did you realize you wanted to be an actor? When I was really little, like six, I was so painfully shy. I could not hold a conversation. I I was just so shy. And I remember I did this thing that was completely out of character for me and I auditioned for a play. I just had this feeling. And I didn't get a very big part in the play. But as I was doing it, my couple of little lines, I felt this freedom. I felt this lightness. And I just was like, oh my gosh, I don't have to be me in these moments. I can just do whatever I want. I can be free. I'm in another person's body. I'm speaking as another person. And I got kind of addicted to it. And then I just did everything. I did plays at church. I did plays at school. I did local theater. And then when I was a teenager, I started to say, well, that's what I want to do for a living. And people just thought it was crazy. That's not really a job, <laughs> you know. It was really not um, seen as being like a, a viable career. Your first big acting role was in the 1994 film, Heavenly Creatures. Uh, it was directed by Peter Jackson, you know, Lord of the Rings, the Beatles movie, Get Back, Peter Jackson. Um, and it was an early film of his. And you co-star with Kate Winslet, and it was her first big movie, too. Uh, it's about two girls in the 1950s who are best friends, who fall in love and end up murdering your character's mother. It's based on a true story. I want to play a quick scene. Um, at this point in the movie, the two girls are about to be separated because Kate um, Winslet's character is moving abroad, leaving with members of her family. The girls want to stay together, even though they're just teenagers, and they're trying to find ways to do this. And in this scene, your character is arguing with her mother. And we also hear your character's voiceover. Um, and the actual voiceovers were all pulled from the real girl, the real Pauline's diaries. Let's take a listen. The Humes will look after me. They want me to live with them. Don't be so ridiculous. You're our daughter. You belong here with us. I belong with Deborah. We're going to South Africa. You're not going anywhere. You're 15 years old, Yvonne. You have to let me go. We'll talk about this when you've calmed down. I felt thoroughly depressed and even quite seriously considered committing suicide. Life seemed so much not worth the living. Death's such an easy way out. Love, you can still write to each other. Anger against a mother boiled up inside me. As it is she who was one of the main obstacles in my path. Suddenly a means of ridding myself of this obstacle occurred to me. If she were to die. That's a scene from Heavenly Creatures. How did you get the part in this film? It is so strange to hear that. <laughs> it's been so, so long. long. <laughs> I just sound like a baby. Um, I they, they came to my high school. There was just one day somebody said, oh, some people are here auditioning for a movie. 
And I thought, oh, this is a good thing to put on my application to drama school to say I auditioned for a movie. <laughs> so I have that experience. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, but they were taking people two at a time into a spare room at the school and they didn't want to show anyone a script or anything like that, so they just had us improvise. And I was with my friend Susie, Susie Schwer, and we just improvised a few scenes together. And we, at the time, were in a dramatic improv class that we did every single Friday night. So we were used to it. It was, you know, kind of second nature for us. And we were so excited afterwards. <laughs> it was so much fun and we couldn't go back to school. So we like took off for the rest of the afternoon and went and sat in the cemetery that was next to the school. And I remember Susie saying, you got that movie. They're going to give you that part. And I was like, don't be crazy. <laughs> it's not how it works. It's a movie, you know. And she said, no, I could tell by how they were looking at you. Um, and then I had to do another very long audition I got flown to Christchurch where they were filming. Peter showed me Kate Winslet's audition tape <laughs> and said, this is how good you have to be. There's a professional actress from England who we found, and she's this good. And I said, all right, let me give it a try. And I did another audition, and I got the job. It was really a, a very, very lucky thing to have happen. Well, it's interesting that your career started with this. You know, we didn't call it toxic friendship back then, but it was this toxic friendship between teenagers that leads to murder. And I remember seeing this movie at the time and loving it because it was about these girls. It was dark. You know, it was a different take on an adolescent girl story. Um, what was it like making this movie that was pretty dark? You know, it's creepy. It's not dark is kind of the right word, particularly at such a young age as a young teen. I wasn't a very light teenager. I was quite sort of depressed a lot of the time. I was, um, there was a lot going on in my life and my head. So it was actually an incredible experience to get to go to work and learn how to channel my actual emotions into acting and kind of free yourself from them. It can be very cathartic going through things in a performance. And I mean, to be working with somebody like Peter Jackson, who I understood at the time was a great director. He's so meticulous. You know, some takes we would do 25 times and the learning I got to do, they gave me a free day where I got to learn how to hit a mark, how to not look at the camera, how to find your light, you know, things, just technical things. And what a gift. Like, it just took all the nervousness away when we did get into the acting part of it. They had a coach on set for me who was tremendously helpful in helping me access the emotion and then at the end of the day let go of it so I didn't go home and just cry my eyes out all night. It was very... um I just feel so fortunate to have had that experience. It was pretty incredible. Well, what happened after you made the movie? Was it hard to go back to normal life? Or did you want to keep acting? I, I did. I, I really wanted to keep acting. And I think I understand 
what everybody was doing, but everybody around me, the, you know, people making the movie were very, very worried that I would, you know, suddenly be like, this is my life now. And they knew it wouldn't be easy for me. It was 1993 when we made the film. And I was kind of a chubby, shy New Zealand girl, you know, there's just not roles out there for someone. Well, at that time, there were, there was nothing for someone who looked like me. And they were really nervous. They were nervous that they had ruined my life. And I just remember over and over again, like, I would be so excited. <laughs> We'd finish a scene and I would be so filled with joy and they'd be like, uh-oh, she's got the bug. And I was like, well, yes, I do. This is all I've ever wanted to do. It was hard but I didn't really have, you know, I didn't have an agent. I didn't have anybody wanting to represent me. So it's not like I had other options. I just went back to high school and finished high school. Yeah, I could understand, like, people who made the film, it's like they they put you through, like, a great experience, but, like, with this heavy material and then showed you kind of this way of life. And then <laughs> I could understand how they'd be protective of you and not want you to get hurt. Yeah, they just were like, oh, God, please don't let us be the ones who lead her into a life of misery. And I don't know what else they were thinking. But at the same time, you know, Kate was already a professional actress. She lived by herself in London. She was working steadily. And so for her, it was more of a stepping stone. It was her first movie. And she's beautiful and she's English and... You know, she was started getting scripts like before the movie had come out. She got a very high-powered agent, and it was a it was a really really different experience. And I think I understood that because I under <laughs> I was in awe of her for the whole production, and understood I was not at that level, and I had not done the work that she had done. But at the same time, it's hard to have nothing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Have everybody be like, good job, and now, you know, <laughs> return to normal. And then see somebody just, like, take off in the way that she did. It was a strange mixture of, like, pride and excitement for her and then kind of shame. Like, I felt like if I was prettier, if I was better, if I... Any number of things, I just thought, like, I wish I had what it took to also be in that position. A few years later, or maybe it was many years later, you moved to L.A. to become an actress. You've talked about how rough it can be to be a young actor. What was tough about it for you? Like, you worked throughout, but what was most difficult? It was difficult hearing all the things that you weren't, <laughs> and it would change from job to job, you know. Oh, they're looking for somebody who's skinnier you know in the 90s and the early 2000s nobody had any issues telling you what was wrong with you physically um and that wasn't very fun <laughs> and then it was mostly a feeling of being appraised and falling short again and again that I didn't like and then some of the stuff I was going out for was just not challenging not interesting some of the stuff my agents were asking me to go and audition for was like outright offensive, like the fat friend, you know, I was like, I'm not gonna 
do that part. I hate that this part exists. You know, you've got to stop sending me <laughs> scripts where there's a lonely girl eating a chocolate bar on the outskirts of the group. Like, I don't, I think it's kind of evil. <laughs> so there's a lot of that kind of thing that I didn't like. We've been listening to the conversation Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado recorded last year with actress Melanie Linsky, one of the stars of the Showtime drama series Yellow Jackets. The show just returned for its second season. After a break, we'll hear about another series about to embark on a season two, the Apple TV Plus musical comedy series Schmigadoon, in a conversation with one of its creators, Cinco Paul. And after that, I'll review the new season, which I love. I'm David Biancooley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Schmigadoon, the TV series that is a loving parody of stage and screen musicals of a bygone era, returns for season two next week. I'll have a review of it later in the show. But first, let's listen to Terry's 2021 interview with Cinco Paul, who wrote all the songs for Schmigadoon. He also co-created and co-wrote the series. Along with his writing partner, Ken Dorio, he wrote the animated films Despicable Me, The Secret Life of Pets, and the Dr. Seuss adaptations Horton Hears a Who and The Lorax. Schmigadoon streams on Apple TV+. It stars Cecily Strong and Keegan-Michael Key as a couple who try to repair their relationship by taking a hike in the woods. They get lost, cross over a bridge, and suddenly find themselves in a small town called Schmigadoon, which looks like a stage or movie set from the early 20th century. The women are wearing prairie dresses with long petticoats, and the men are dressed like they're in a barbershop quartet. It turns out that in this town, life is a musical. People sing their feelings and dance, too. This is initially charming for the Cecily Strong character, but Keegan-Michael Key's character hates musicals. Soon, they realize they're trapped in a musical, and like it or not, their conversations will be interrupted by people breaking out into song. In this scene, they've just entered Schmigadoon and are totally disoriented. When the townspeople break out into song, see if you know which musical inspired this particular number.
Cinco Paul, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much for creating this series. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. How did you come up with the idea of a musical about people trapped in a musical set in the early 20th century? Well, it's kind of crazy. I had the idea for this almost 25 years ago. And it was while I was watching the movie An American Werewolf in London, of all things, uh, one of my favorite movies. And it opens with you know two friends hiking through the the wilderness and um, they're hiking over the countryside and I suddenly thought, wow, the opening to this is very much like the opening to Brigadoon. And then I thought, what if these two modern guys, instead of stumbling on a town that has a werewolf, stumbled on a town that was in a musical? And that was the germ of the idea, but I didn't really know what to do with it. So it was one of those that I just filed away. But what really cracked it for me was, oh, instead of two friends, it should be a couple. So that it is more of a romantic comedy and it can be more about what does love mean? What's true love really mean? I think that's why for 25 years, nothing happened with it because it it needed that uh, addition to really crack it. So the Cecily Strong character loves musicals. The Keegan-Michael Key character hates musicals. Why did you want him to hate musicals? Well, I thought it was really important. I mean, first of all, it's really funny to have someone who hates musicals be stuck in a musical. But also for him to be the eyes and ears of the people, unlike me, who don't love musicals. And um, in many ways, that was Ken. And in many ways, it's my wife, you know. that. Oh, boy, uh, you're trapped. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, we Ken and I, you know, played music all the time when we were writing. And whenever a musical theater song would somehow pop up in my mix, he would say, skip. <laughs> <laughs> he was not a fan. He's become a little more of a fan. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say my wife hates musicals, but she does not you know, embrace them in the way that I do. So it was really important for the show to have that perspective. Some musicals have really corny scenes in them. And um, the kind of scene that always bores me is the picnic scene, where it's like, this was a real nice clam bake. I'm really glad we came. It's like, can we skip that? (laughs) Can we skip that and get to the good stuff? And, you know, even like operas have like songs like that where there's, you know, like a festival or, you know, a picnic or something. And like, those are usually boring too. And I, I, I never really understand the function that they serve. And you kind of have a song parodying that called Corn Puddin'. Yes. And so the reason why they're singing about corn pudding is it's, it's their first morning in town and they're sitting on the porch and about to have breakfast and they're asked if they want some corn pudding, and they don't even know what corn pudding is. And then the town just starts singing about how great corn pudding is. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about what you think of those moments in musicals where you have to sing about food or a picnic or a clam bake. <laughs> yeah, I mean, corn pudding came out of, initially was thinking, you know, what is the song that is most going to annoy Keegan's <laughs> character? <laughs> what would be the worst possible song to subject him to, you know? And it's just, oh, a song just about food. And Corn Pudding suddenly came to me as just, it's kind of the perfect representation of these sort of songs, like the, it's a real nice clam bake. Like, who cares? Like, you know, 
<laughs> the songs really should move the story forward in some way. And, and I think the, the, the worst example is Shapoopy from Music Man, which is it brings everything to a grinding halt. And then this Marcellus character is just singing this nonsense song that has nothing to do with anything. And so um, that's what Quorum Puddin is. It's an ode to, to those songs. But the, the fun thing is that ironically in our show, it does move the story forward because this stupid song gets Keegan to say, okay, we're leaving. <laughs> We're not going to spend another minute in this town. And the waitress delivering the corn pudding is the younger woman who's pursuing him. Yes. Why don't we hear corn pudding? And um, we'll also hear the Cecily Strong character kind of join in in a verse, much to the Keegan-Michael Key character's annoyance. I'm not singing, and you're not singing. Come on, could be fun. No, do not. Never had corn pudding. Why? And it may be a waste, but if you've got some extra, extra, I sure would like a taste. Oh, she sure would like a taste. Yum. Oh, that was so weird. It was like as soon as I started singing, I knew what to say. That's fantastic. Can we please go now? What? Why? Are you serious? The entire town and you just spent the last five minutes singing about corn pudding. Did somebody say corn pudding? That's it. We're leaving. Corn okay. Well, that one's on you. The music is kind of like a hoedown. Yes. It, it just reminded me, too, that when I was in school... We had to learn some of that kind of dancing, you know, like square dancing. Yeah, that was part of the curriculum yeah, somehow. Like, why are we learning this? We, we live in Brooklyn. Like, what are you, what are you thinking? <laughs> I guess it was more appropriate for me growing up in Phoenix. I wonder if is square dancing still taught in some schools? I feel like when my kids were little, they were still teaching square dancing. There must be a lobby somewhere <laughs> that is making sure that that's still taught in schools. I like that idea, the square dancing <laughs> lobby. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cinco Paul speaking with Terry Gross in 2021. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. I want to get to another song. We all know that so many performers on Broadway historically have been gay, and it's only in recent years that they, they've been able to be out. And it's only recently that are, there are actually musicals about gay people who are out of the closet. So you have a few really funny references to, like, closeted gay people in musicals. One of the really funny songs, um, the, the mayor, who's played by Alan Cumming, is secretly gay, and it's a secret he's never disclosed to anybody. And he sings a song that kind of is a secret love kind of song. <laughs> but Yes, where he inadvertently reveals to Cecily's character that he's gay. Because she has gaydar, and no one in the town does. <laughs> yes, exactly. But the mayor's wife sings a song that's called He's a Queer One, That Man of Mine. She has no clue that he's gay. But... She knows that, you know, he's different from the other men. And usually in those songs, that's like, he's wonderful. He's so different from other men. (laughs) But in this one, it's kind of like, hmm, he's so different than other men. Um, I want you to talk about writing this because this is an example of a song that I don't think closely adheres to another song. It's a kind of, um, there's references to other songs in it, including You're a Queer One, Julie Jordan, um, from... That's from Carousel, right? That's from Carousel, yeah. Yeah. So, but talk about writing this and what you wanted to do with it. Yeah, I mean, to me, there is a trope in these musicals often. There's a song called Something Wonderful from King and I and uh, another song from Carousel called What's the Use of Wandering. And I guess there's also um, Can't Help Loving That Man of Mine. You know, these women who sing songs where are, you know... He has maybe these flaws, but I still love him, you know? And so I wanted to play with that. But this is a song where she has no clue that her husband is gay. And so she, but everything that is evidence that he's gay, she sees as a really positive quality. Like he doesn't look at other women, (laughs) you know? (laughs) He's amazing and he's so tender and he loves cooking. And, you know, she talks about like other men are really harsh and, and, but he's, He's gentle, you know, like a, a lacy valentine. <laughs> and um, for her, it's all these really positive qualities. But also really, in, in many ways, the mayor's story is, is at the heart of, of the show because he is one of these characters that back in the day could only be queer-coded, you know? And, and, uh, but because we have modern characters in Schmigadoon now and Cecily's character really likes to get involved in people's lives. Um, she helps push him to, you know, proclaim to the whole town who he really is. And Alan does such an amazing job with this character and really gives him depth and, and heart in a way that elevates it even beyond, you know, what I'd hoped he'd bring. Yeah, he's, he's great in it. 
So this starts, this clip will start with Cecily Strong speaking. And I should say that the mayor's last name is Menlove. <laughs> Another little clue. Okay, so here's, he's a queer one, and this is Anne Harada singing. Mrs. Menlove, forgive me for asking, but how much do you really know about your husband? That's a good question. He's a hard man to know, it seems. Different. Some men like to fight and curse. They smoke and drink and yell. Leave you flat or even worse, they stay and make life hell. But my man is gentle, as soft and sentimental as any lace adorned of Valentine. He's a queer one, that man, oh mine. Oh, honey. Some men stumble home at dark, want dinner and dessert. Other men have eyes that spark at every passing skirt. But my man loves cooking. I've never caught him looking at other gals more young, petite, or fine. He's a queer one, that man, oh my. This was literally me in high school. Show me any other man more tender or expressive. I only wish that nightly he were slightly more aggressive. There it is. Sometimes it may seem like he is too good to be true. Like there's a man that I can't see just aching to break through. I wish I could free him so I could finally see him the way he truly is and let him shine. He's a queer one, that man, oh mine. That's music from Schmigadoon, the loving satire of 40s and early 1950s musicals, and my guest, Cinco Paul, co-created the series, co-wrote it, and wrote all the songs. Oh, that's really, it's a funny song, but it's also, it's a lovely song. It's a nice melody. Yeah, I mean, that was the intention. I never wanted the songs to be too jokey, if that makes sense. You know, I really wanted them, like, oh, that could genuinely have been a song sung in an undiscovered Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. And and then it ends in a very, you know, Anne does an amazing job with a song, and it ends in a really sweet spot, right, where she sort of wishes he could be who he really is. She suspects that he's not being his true self. She doesn't know what that actually means, but she really wishes the best for him and loves him. Well, listen, congratulations on Schmigadoon. Please do a season two. And um, it's been great to talk with you. From your mouth to God's ears. It, uh, Tara, I have to say, it is so meaningful to me that you like the show and that you responded to it like this. Thank you so much. 
Cinco Paul, speaking with Terry Gross in 2021. Season two of Schmigadoon premieres next Wednesday on Apple TV+. After a break, I'll review it. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can. Like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short- or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. This is Fresh Air. I'm TV critic David Biancooley. We've just heard from songwriter Cinco Paul about collaborating on the first season of Schmigadoon. Next Wednesday, Schmigadoon returns on Apple TV Plus with the first two episodes of a new six-part second season. As in season one, Cecily Strong and Keegan-Michael Key star as Melissa and Josh, a modern couple who find themselves transported to a mythical musical land in which everyone tends to break into song and dance. Last season echoed the setting, feeling, and music of classic mid-century musicals like Oklahoma and, of course, Brigadoon. For season two, the tone is inspired by musicals of the 60s and 70s, and it's a lot darker. Once again, this gives Cinco Paul and Company the chance to salute or parody some very familiar musical theater classics. But this time, the supporting players from last season get to return as entirely new characters, like the ensemble cast members of American Horror Story get to do in that anthology series. Dove Cameron, for season two of Schmigadoon, plays a Sally Bowles kind of vamp from Cabaret. While Alan Cumming, who played the MC in the revival of that Broadway musical, instead takes on the role of a murderous demon butcher, echoing Sweeney Todd. Jane Krakowski takes on the slick lawyer role from Chicago, but with a gender switch that allows for a little Roxy Hart as well. And the musicals Hair and Godspell also are represented, along with Jesus Christ Superstar and Dreamgirls. And so is Sweet Charity, when Melissa and Josh, seated at a table in the nightclub, watch and comment upon the onstage dancers, whose attitude and Bob Fosse choreography may have been provocative 60 years ago, but not so much now. He's wearing a dress. 
Yeah, I mean, I've, I've literally seen every season of Drag Race, yeah. so. Do we scare you? Are you too refined? I'm into boys and girls. Does that just blow your mind? Other girls get thanked and tipped. Us, we just like to get spanked and whipped. I wonder if the meatloaf's any good. Whatever is being lampooned, it's treated with affection and obvious enthusiasm. And wow, is it fun. This season, subtitled Schmacago, is tighter and better plotted than the original Schmigadoon and is more confident and inventive. Even the acting between songs is a delight. Kristen Chenoweth made me laugh out loud as a combination Mrs. Lovett from Sweeney Todd and Miss Hannigan from Annie, whether or not she was singing. So did Alan Cumming as the cleaver-carrying butcher, Dooley Flint. When they decide to pair up in a later episode so that she can provide her unwanted orphans as the secret ingredient for his meat pies, the two Broadway veterans turn in a perfect parody of one of the most famous numbers from Sweeney Todd. Only instead of pretending to be customer and server and rhyming the occupations of future victims, they rhyme using the names of the always underfoot orphans. I'd love some ground beef. Well, then, sir, you're in luck. Which do you prefer? We go pie or chuck? <laughs> Have you any mutton? That would be satin. Perhaps some foie gras. Bologna. Tony. Salami. Tommy. And we've also got Reuben. If you like pastrami. But do you... That comes later in the series, but it's worth the wait. And there are gems from the start. Dove Cameron, as decadent chanteuse Jenny Banks, makes her first appearance as a club headliner with a song and dance that is close enough to a number from Cabaret to raise eyebrows. Back when I was summering in Brussels I fell in love with Martin and his muscles My heart got pumping every time he flexed It's fair to say that I was overcome by what came next Turns out he wasn't all that strong in bed And that is when I turned to him and said, We've gone kaput. Now we're kaput. Once our desire burned like a fire, but now there's nothing left but soot. We had a laugh or two, but now the laughter is through. My dear, I fear that we're kaput. This season of Schmigadoon is stronger than many Broadway musicals I've seen and more overloaded with talent. Ariana DeBose is back this year, as are Aaron Tveit and Martin Short. And the newcomers include Titus Burgess as the narrator and Patrick Page as the villain. Everyone gets a chance to shine, and everyone does. 
I've seen all six episodes, and each one contains at least one really clever song, one very funny scene, and several surprises and references too good to spoil by mentioning. This second season of Schmigadoon is more accessible than the first. And even though Schmacago wraps up its storyline very tightly at the end, it's so good, I hope they're planning another Schmequel. On Monday's show, Armageddon, what the Bible really says about the end. We talk with Bible scholar Bart Ehrman about his new book. He says a literal reading of the book of Revelation has created disastrous problems, including personal and psychological damage and consequences for U.S. foreign policy and the welfare of our planet. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm David B. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.